would like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Uh, we're going to read, I'm going to read a, a couple of verses in uh, just a moment. While you're turning there, let me mention a couple of things. One, uh, Jonathan Bittner was supposed to be home this weekend on fall break from Cedarville, but last Wednesday his lung collapsed after track practice. So he is there, and uh, Jeff and Cheryl are actually out there with him. It was a somewhat minor lung collapse, only 10%. Um, but it hasn't re-inflated uh, as it should. He's going to go see a pulmonologist next week on Tuesday. So you can pray for uh, Jonathan. I learned from Jeff that uh, collapsed lungs happen occasionally in very tall, very thin men. And Jonathan fits both of those. I'm safe, but Jonathan <laughs> fits those characteristics. So we'll pray for him. second thing I want to mention, too, is I received an email from... Uh, Dan Houck this week, he received all 720 of the Creole Bibles that we sent to him. He was very grateful to receive them. He's already distributed some of them. He gave some to a police chief in town to distribute, and he gave some to uh, one of the other pastors in town, and he said these will last me until June, and uh, he's very grateful for uh, the gift that we gave him uh, in that work. I'm happy to have Dan be known in that town as the man with all the Bibles. Isn't that good? So um, we give thanks to God for that opportunity. Now, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read the first seven verses of this chapter. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, if you have been with us over the last few weeks, as we have been, few months rather, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we come to this chapter, and I understand this scene might seem like a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, maybe this is a, bit of, a little bit of a letdown, this chapter. It, it certainly seems like that. Uh, it seems rather quiet and domestic in comparison to what we have done before. I mean, just think about this. In Acts chapter 5, there's that great scene. Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin. All the apostles have been arrested, and there they stand. And Peter stands up, and he says to them, God has raised this Jesus whom you crucified when you hung him on a tree and has exalted him to his right hand where he reigns as prince and savior. And you can still hear Peter's words echoing off the walls when you come to chapter 6, and you find out, there's grumbling going on. It doesn't quite seem to match. 
We're thinking about a couple weeks before that, we were in Acts chapter 3, and Peter and John walk up to the temple, and uh, they, they see a man lame from birth. And they reach down, and Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of the Lord Jesus, rise and walk. And the guy gets up, and he leaps and jumps around the temple. He's so excited, giving thanks to God for what he has done. And you still can see the dust swirling from that that, uh, uh, praise service that this man leads. When we come to chapter 6, and we find... There's arrangements made here for how they're going to set the table and serve the food. What's the buffet line going to look like? It's not quite the same. Or in Acts chapter 1, the ascendant, the risen Lord Jesus commissions his disciples and ascends into heaven. And and the disciples, their eyes are still adjusting from staring into the sky when we come to chapter 6. And the, the main plot point in this chapter is a congregational meeting and the formation of a committee about which almost no one ever gets excited. You could be excused. You could be excused for thinking that chapter 6 Something is amiss here that acts, uh, for a moment at least, seems to be deflating a little bit. You could be excused that if it were not for chapter 7, which says, The word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. There are a number of summary statements like this in the, in the first few chapters of Acts. We've already seen uh, them. They always seem to follow some great event, and they're meant to show us how that event shaped the church and its ability to represent Jesus well in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. It's Luke's way of telling us that what the disciples did resulted in the ministry being happier, broader, newer, spreading. And one of those summary statements is in verse 7. The Bible says that the the number of disciples increased rapidly. I'm not exactly sure what that means. The last numerical account we've had of the disciples is in um, Acts 2.41. And there it said 3,000 more believers were added. So the church in Acts 2 was up to 5,000. There's several reports of it growing rapidly than this one. Some scholars estimate that there's probably 10,000 people who are followers of Jesus. You know, the first church, like the first century, nice small country churches. Now, And what happens, actually, in this passage, in the first six verses, is an explanation from a human standpoint of the reason for the rapid growth of the church. The way they responded to this problem that they were having prepared the way for what happens in verse 7. It seems, it seems strange to us. But Luke is describing for us how, when the early church responded to something very mundane, when they did it wisely, when they did it with, with um, graciousness and sensitivity to one another, it was one of the tools that God used to the great advance of their work. The next big step comes from the solution of this very mundane problem. 
When I was in college, David Jeremiah, his name you probably recognize, David Jeremiah came to a school and he did a, a Bible conference and he did a pastor's conference while he was there. And I, I went to it and one of the things that David Jeremiah shared with us was his understanding of what the Bible teaches about how a church grows. He said to us, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. He has taken responsibility for the growth of the church. He said, I think that what we should try to do is try to figure out the answer, what is keeping the church from growing? Not what can we do to make it grow, but what's keeping it from growing? Because Jesus said he'll grow it. It's his responsibility. What are we doing that's in the way? Is another way of saying that. Here's how the early believers responded to a growth-stopping problem. We're going to, as we often do with narrative texts, I want to, want to walk through this story. It's a great passage of Scripture. It, it, it encourages me. It, it encourages us. I think we all should find encouragement here because it affirms some of the things that we're trying to do in our church. It also challenges me a little bit about how I operate as one of the full-time elders in the congregation. Uh, what I want to do is I want to walk through it and I want to uncover some of the, the principles uh, and values that arise from this text. Uh, the Lord builds his church. Um, and following these is no guarantee. It doesn't mandate God to do anything among us. But, but here we are, these values that, that set us aright for the Lord adding to our numbers. Well, let, let's read, shall we? Let's move through slowly this text. Verse 1, I'm going to read it again. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, uh, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. You know, the wording in verse 1 and verse 7 is identical. The number of disciples is increasing, verse 7. The number of disciples increased rapidly. And, and we find this principle at work even in this first verse. Growth brings new challenges. This passage is telling us a very simple truth about what happens in churches. Growth brings new challenges. Healthy organisms grow, and with that growth, new challenges come. Um, you can see this. Uh, even, even in the best of congregations here, the, the healthiest, the most well-led new challenges arise. Um, just think of it in a very basic way. When more people come, you have to have more stuff. You need to have more nursery workers to care for the children. You need to have more chairs in the auditorium. You need to have more parking spaces for the cars. You need to have more of those little plastic cups to serve the Lord's Supper. You need more elders for shepherding work. So growth brings challenges. Now here more specifically, this is the problem that was going on. There seems to be some sort of ethnic cultural tension in the church. Ethnic is not the right word because they're all Jews. Um, but there's two different groups in, in the church. There's Hellenistic Jews and there's Hebraic Jews. Now, Hellenism, uh, let me explain. Hellenism is a word that refers to the influence that the Greeks had on the known world at the time. 
Alexander the Great died in AD 323, about 350 years before this scene. And, and before he died, he conquered the world, the known world, all around the Mediterranean Sea and far into uh, the eastern portion of the world. And as Alexander the Great went, he spread Greek culture, the Greek language, Greek philosophy, Greek architecture, Greek literature, Greek government. He created a, a, a system, a, he created a, what's been called a Hellenistic world. Now, where does Hellenism come from? The ancient word for the Greek state is Hellenistes. So he created this Hellenistic world. And during this time, there were Jews that were, some were exiled, some traveled. They spread out around this, this, this region and they lived because they lived in these Greek-like cities like um, Athens or Ephesus or Thessalonica. They spoke Greek. And they lived under the influence of, of Hellenism. Over time, some of them returned to Israel. And in fact, we, we're going to talk about one of these next week. There were synagogues in Jerusalem where the service was held, not in Hebraic or Aramaic, or Hebrew and Aramaic, but in, in Greek. Because there were Jews that that was their language. So they had their own synagogues. And some of those Jews, Hellenized Jews, had become Christians and there's this tension in the church. Um, tension between them and these Hebraic Jews. That is, these Jews who'd never left Palestine, who'd never, never gone, who spoke uh, Aramaic, and, and Palestine was their home. And the tension is over how the Hellenistic Jewish followers of Jesus were being treated at the dining table. And the tension arises when some of the Hellenistic Jews start complaining. That word complaining, is your translation might say grumbled. Grumble, 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 grumble. The Bible never says anything good about grumbling or complaining. Uh, the text says that there's concern here over the daily distribution of food, particularly to the widows. It's probably a reference to the community meal that the church would have. If the church, as part of its benevolent care for people, was giving away money, they could do that on a weekly basis. But they're doing this on a daily basis. They're probably talking here about perishable food. So they're getting together to eat on a daily basis. And the problem is how these Hellenistic widows are being treated. And we've talked about this before. The, the widows in ancient culture are the most vulnerable people in society. Maybe only orphans are second to them. Um, there was no Social Security. There's no Medicare. Uh, there's no uh, retirement accounts. Uh, and the widows have no one to defend them and no one to care for them and no one pro to provide for them. Unless you can earn money every day, you don't eat. Unless... You have a family member or somebody who takes care of you. Our world is a little bit different than this one, obviously. But the church is caring for these women. Now, you, this strike is a little odd. Do you remember in chapter 4? In chapter 4 it said that the church, they were selling their possessions and no one had any needs. Everybody had exactly what they needed. That was happening in chapter 4. Now here in chapter 6, there's some people who apparently are going without. Church growth brings challenges. Uh, e even in healthy congregations, in healthy congregations led by apostles. This is a great church here in Acts 6, but it's not a perfect church. There's complaining going on, which I find to be incredibly encouraging. 
Um, you should find that to be incredibly encouraging too, especially if you lead uh, a ministry. People express concerns. That's a nice way of saying complain. People express concerns to me all the time. And sometimes they express their concerns and they're not complaining. But they do that to me all the time. Do they do it to you too if you lead a ministry? Something's wrong with the nursery. Something's wrong with the WANA. Something's wrong with the children's church. Something's wrong with the sound system. Something's wrong with the bulletin. Something's wrong with the building. Brothers and sisters, trust me. If in this church, led by apostles who were trained by the Lord Jesus, there was cause for complaint, you're going to have cause for complaint in a church where I'm one of the elders. Uh, right now, we're, we're working, aren't we, through a, a, this uh, uh, challenge presented by the growth that we have experienced. Our, our auditorium over the last couple of years has been increasingly full. So we have people worshiping down in the fellowship hall today. They are the ones whose last name starts with I and the, through O. My directory says it starts with Immel and goes through Osman. Nobody, she's here, don't look at her, but Dot's upstairs. <laughs> Not that we're looking. If you have knee surgery and are over 85, you don't have to go down the stairs, okay? Dot's not over 85. She only fits one of those characteristics. But Now, why, why are we doing this, going downstairs? So there's more room for people up here, visitors up here to come and, and worship with us. Worshiping downstairs is not perfect, is it? We spent a good bit of money this summer, and it's better. The sound system is much better, the camera is much better, the projector is much better. It is, it is better, but it, it's, not, it's not perfect. I wish we could recreate perfectly downstairs the same experience that people have upstairs. But it's, it's, it's not even possible, as much as we're trying. Think about this in our congregation, how willing our church is to respond to this challenge that's presented by growth. That's evidence of God's grace when you move down there gladly and willingly. Uh, growth brings new challenges. They'll inevitably come. What's the next one we're going to face? I don't know, but when it comes, we'll, we'll work on it because they will come inevitably. Now, let's move on to verse 2, shall we? Verse 2. Uh, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Do you know what this is here in Acts 6? It's a beautiful thing for us Baptists. This is a congregational meeting. Ah, we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to spend uh, just a minute or two pointing out to you the fact that this, this church is well led. Notice it's well led by men who, who would be described as those who exhibit humble leadership. That's the second principle I think we get from this passage, humble leadership. Notice how these apostles did, uh, did not respond to the complaining. They did not stand up and say, look, this is not really a problem. They didn't deny there was a problem. They didn't blame the complainers. Don't you know what the Bible says about grumbling? They didn't, they didn't minimize the concern. It's only food. I mean, come on. It's just a little bit of bread. They didn't do any of those Things. In fact, they, they very quickly and decisively uh, responded to the problem. And they did it with a very clear eye on their own responsibilities. It seems like up to this point in time, waiting on tables has been one of their duties. It's what they do. And they were doing it poorly. 
They didn't make excuses about that either. That's something else they, they didn't do. They recognize that they have a certain responsibility in the church. My translation says it would not be right. Yours might say it would not be pleasing. Now, the question is, pleasing to whom? I, I think the answer to that question is the Lord Christ Jesus himself would not be pleased if they neglected the ministry of the word because he himself had commissioned them to do a specific job, the ministry of the word. And and in this moment, when they're trying to wait on tables and serve the word, something has to give. How did they decide what was going to give for them? They decided it by the commission that the Lord Jesus had already given them. Waiting on tables is important work. So is the ministry of the word. And they can't do both any longer. And they come to this point where they gladly recognize this and freely ad- admit this. So they let go of it. Let's look at verses 3 and 4, shall we? Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. A number of principles, I think, arise from these two verses. The first one is organizational flexibility. Organizational flexibility. Do you know what the apostles do? They, they appoint a committee, or they ask the church to appoint a committee, a new team, a new group. Um, they come up with the idea of having seven men. I don't know where. No one knows where the idea of seven came from. The best suggestion I have is uh, that in northern Galilee, where these men were from, towns were often led by a group of seven judges. Maybe that's where this comes from. We don't don't know. But now what's going to happen is there's going to be two recognized groups in the church. There's going to be the twelve, and there's going to be the seven. A lot of people speculate when they read this that this is the beginning of the office of deacon in the church. It's debated. Don't argue too much about this. But there seems to be some overlap here between what's described in Acts 6 and what's described in the passage that Merv read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Some men call these, you'll love this phrase, some people call them proto-deacons. Oh, you have to be a theologian to come up with that. Uh, These uh, early originators, these first prototype deacons. Now, when it comes to organizing a church, there are certain demands that are placed on us. In order for us to be a New Testament church, we must have elders. Paul went through, when when he moved through the region, he appointed elders in the churches. He commissioned Titus and Timothy to appoint elders. We must have elders in order to be a New Testament church. When the apostles were passing off of the scene, they did not appoint new apostles. They appointed elders to lead the congregation. That's an important observation for another sermon another time. Now, the Bible also describes this office, Merv read about it again in 1 Timothy 3, of deacons, or perhaps deaconesses, too. I don't think the Bible mandates that a church have an office of deacon like it does for an elder, but we can appoint them if we need them. They're there. We actually, we actually have people in our church who function like deacons. We just don't call them that. They serve on our Care and Concern Committee and the Building and Finance Committee, and they do work like preparing the elements for the Lord's Supper, and they um, balance the church's books. We could appoint them as deacons if we needed to, but we haven't yet. There are forms that the Bible mandates that we have 
but what sort of flexibility do we have within that to solve problems that we have? Uh, many years ago, many, many years ago, in order to shepherd the congregation well, the elders decided that they were going to divide the church into groups. And if you've been around a while, you've heard people talk about who your elder is, or who's my elder. And when they first did this, every elder took one page of the directory, and it was a small directory at the time. It had five or six families on it. Uh, that's not true anymore. <laughs> Our elder groups have... A lot of people, the, significant, the task is very significant. So what sort of flexibility do we have to shepherd the congregation? Could growth groups maybe serve this purpose in, in some ways? Or glimpse Bible studies or mentoring groups that, that we have? The church is responding in this passage nimbly to the problem that they have. Now here's, here's another principle that, that is important for us to notice here from this passage. Qualified leadership. Qualified leadership. We talk about this a lot, don't we? The apostles tell the congregation to choose seven men, and they are to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, by that, what that means is they're to have an understanding of the task that's before them. That is, they're supposed to be able to figure this out in a good and pleasing way. They're supposed to be wise. And they're supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit. That is, they need to have in their lives evidence that they are followers of Jesus Christ. That in some way the Holy Spirit has transformed them, has changed them. That they are uh, evidently publicly known as followers of Christ. Uh, in, a, in a few weeks, uh, I believe, you'll have an opportunity to nominate men to serve as elders in our church. And you'll get a, uh, on the, the form, or as part of that discussion, we'll talk again about the qualifications for serving as elders. This, this, this call for qualified men has deep roots in the Bible. And as I think about this situation here in this passage, I, I remember a discussion that we've been having over the last oh, a couple of years. We've talked about this all the time, don't we? About whether or not you have to be a member in order to serve in some capacity in our church. We have that discussion. Now, you should join the church. Okay, that's not up for debate. The debate is whether or not you need to be a member in order to serve in some capacity in our church. And uh, I'll, I'll, let me, this is a, a warning here. In the next 20 seconds, I'm going to sound like I'm trying to make a definitive statement about this, that this is coming. Uh, uh, I'm not. But I do want you to notice here something in this, this passage. Um, we can't, I don't think we can ignore the, this principle. These are the qualifications of those who are going to serve the benevolent resources of the church. And notice how high the bar is for them. They're not going to be appointed to teach. They're not going to be appointed to pray. And still, Peter sets the bar pretty high for them uh, in, in their ministry. So it behooves us to ask, then, in light of this, how loose should we make our own requirements to serve in the church? The apostles don't set up and say, hey, look, you know, if you're interested in knowing what it means to be a Christian or if you want to find out what it means to be part of the church, this might be a good opportunity for you to, to get in and, and serve. They're not trying to attract people to the church by offering them a chance to get involved in benevolent ministries. There's congregations who do this. It's an outreach strategy. Kathy has a friend who's a, a medical doctor, and she's not a follower of Christ, 
And a couple of years ago, she went on a missions trip with a local congregation in the county because, uh, uh, well, they needed her. They were doing some medical work, and uh, they were hoping that that her going along would be a way for her to meet Christians and, and see what Christianity is about. I can't imagine the apostles would be thrilled about that. Look at how high they set this bar for waiting on tables, for, for, for passing out funds. Surely there are non people without these qualifications being full of the Holy Spirit or wisdom who, who would, would be able to do that pretty well, I would think. Look at these men here who eventually get the position. Verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they choose these men. Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. We don't know very much about any of these men. In fact, there's only um, we know a little bit more about Stephen. He's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Actually, for the next couple weeks, after Steve Niles is here, Lord willing, we're going to look at Stephen. He's the main character in the next couple chapters. Then Philip is going to come up in in chapter 8. He's a great evangelist, Philip is. We don't know anything about Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas. Nicholas was from Antioch, his hometown, and he had converted to Judaism and then had become a Christian. So, Nicholas is a Hellenized person now appointed to make sure that the Hellenized widows get their, their food. In fact, all of these are, are Hellenized names. Some people think that they chose Hellenized Jews for this position why, wisely. But these, these are qualified men. Now, here's another principle that arises from verses 3 and 4. Shared leadership. Shared leadership. And notice, it's the congregation who chooses these men and the apostles who dedicate them to the task. This is one of the passages that helps us to come to our convictions about congregationalism. The ultimate authority in our church is the congregation. Now, how did the congregation choose these seven men? I don't know. Um, Maybe there were several nominations from the church and they voted. (laughs) That, that sounds familiar to me, but maybe that's how they did. Or maybe, maybe there were nominations and they cast lots, like they chose the apostle in, in, in Acts 1. That, that's another possibility. But it's the congregation's responsibility to choose these seven men. Notice here, also in this, this verse, the concept of dedicated ministry. We move from shared leadership to dedicated ministry. By that, I mean there were people in the church who were appointed to specific tasks with specific priorities. They were dedicated to a ministry. The apostles were appointed by Christ himself to the work of prayer and the ministry of the word. And Scott and I, as best I can understand it, as full-time elders, have been appointed by the congregation, not the Lord Jesus himself, but the congregation for similar work. So if I'm reading this text correctly, it helps me understand and remember what the church has appointed me to do. Here it is. Pay attention, Divini. Devote yourself to prayer and the ministry of the word. And notice that word ministry, it's not real clear in the English, but that word ministry actually applies to both of these tasks, serving tables and serving the word. What sort of ministry are you dedicated to? I read this passage, actually, and it reminds me again. Um, 
often as I go through the book of Acts, it gives me an opportunity to affirm and, and delight in the, the place where I serve. Um, I serve as a, in a congregation that, that appreciates this commissioning work. Not all churches do. Scott and I are reading a book right now about the pastor's family. And uh, uh, in it, uh, the author, his name is Brian Croft, and he talks about how um, uh, one day there was a friend of his was a pastor, and, and, and on Tuesday of, uh, of a week, one of the uh, deacons in the church came to him and said, Hey, I drive by the church a lot, and I don't see your car in the parking lot very much. You need to be in the office more so that people, if they stop by the church, they can talk to you, and you, maybe you should be there studying too. You should be at the church more. On Thursday of that week, he got a visit from one of the other deacons who said, I drive by this church all the time, and your car is there always. You really need to be out more visiting people and not in the office so much. I rarely ever get that sort of uh, uh, tension. I have rarely ever experienced that tension. In fact, I receive a lot of encouragement in this church for me to continue my work of studying and, and preparing. Actually, it worries me a little bit sometimes. Well, there was a pastor once who told his congregation, he lived in the parsonage, it was two or three doors down from the church, and he bragged to his congregation that he could prepare his sermon in the amount of time it took him to walk from the parsonage to the church. So the congregation bought him a parsonage ten miles away. <laughs> so I get a lot of encouragement to study, which concerns me sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, actually, there's, there's men and women in the church who've read this passage and obviously take this very seriously for me. This passage is, admonishes me. I love it and I hate it at the same time. There's someone in this church who is apt to forget what this says. He's my worst critic. He is always driving me to spend more time managing details and organizing things and administrating, and he never seems to me to to me to want me to be in my office with my Bible open studying. Do you know who that person is? It's me. In recent weeks, some members of the church have actually thought about this and talked to me about this more. I'm really slow and really stubborn to respond to their gracious efforts. I'm grateful for it, but I'm stubborn. Now, don't misunderstand here. What I, I don't think that Acts is 6 is telling us that the apostles never, ever served at all bread again. And I don't think that Acts 6 is telling us that these appointed table servers never preached or never prayed. In fact, all we ever see Philip and Stephen doing is preaching and praying. So I'm not sure when they had time to serve tables. But there's value here in both of these ministries. They require different gifts and skills. And the passage teaches us that as the church grows, there's a need for more focused, more dedicated work. Now, finally here again, let's return to verse 7, and we see this principle at work, gospel growth, gospel growth. So the word of God spread. It's a beautiful phrase. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why did the church grow rapidly from a human standpoint? I know the Lord is adding to their number. Don't forget that as we read the book of Acts. 
From a human standpoint, what's going on here? I think what's happening is that the church is representing Christ to its full potential. It's doing two things really well. It's caring for its own and it's proclaiming the gospel. It's doing both of those things in a balanced and beautiful way. And, and, and God is adding to the numbers what's happening here. That, that, that connection between our faith and our caring for our own, we'll think about that for a minute, is, is evident. Look at James 1.27. Religion that, is, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Or John 13.35. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, I was reading this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says, maybe it was 3. When you don't remember, you just say 1 Thessalonians. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he says, I don't need me to write you about your love for one another because God himself has taught you to love one another. That's the beautiful thing. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was reading an article from the online magazine Slate. It was written by a columnist named Brian Palmer, who himself is a self-professed atheist, and he was writing about his concerns about uh, the fact that the people who are doing most of the work in Africa confronting Ebola are medical missionaries. Uh, this is the, it was called, the article was called In Medicine We Trust, Should We Worry That So Many of the Doctors Treating Ebola in Africa Are Missionaries? Now, um, reading this article would make you mad, I think. Uh, what he does is he expressed all his concern. These missionaries are in these jungle outposts, remote jungle outposts, and there's no government oversight of them at all. And he complains because um, who knows, you know, they're, they're, they believe in miracles. Who knows what sort of medicine they're actually practicing. And he complains, you know, they actually have the audacity to tell people that they're serving them because God loves them. Well, uh, Ross Douthat uh, wrote about this in the New York Times. Listen to what he said. The first time I read the piece by Brian Palmer, I was filled with a stuttering sort of rage. But reading it again, it doesn't actually merit that kind of clickbait outrage. Palmer seems less hostile to Christian missionaries in their work than he is confused by what they're doing. He clearly has a set of ideological frames through which he sees the world, a set of assumptions. Here are his assumptions. The separation of medicine and religion should be absolute. Proselytization, uh, being a missionary, is wicked, backward, and ignorant. Helping people is what governments and secular groups are supposed to do. Those are Brian Palmer's assumptions. Those assumptions simply don't fit what's happening on the ground in Africa and who's actually there, which in turn leaves Brian Palmer both unsettled and subtly resentful at those Christian missionary doctors who are unsettling him. See, Dalvin says that what really upsets Brian Palmer is that the religious zealots are showing him up. He's a committed atheistic rationalist, and these religious zealots are showing him up. Actually, this is not new in the history of the world. Um, in the 4th century, there was a, a, a Roman official, his name was Pliny, and he wrote a famous, pretty well-known letter to the emperor at the time, whose name was Julian. This was, again, a thousand, two, uh, 
2,000, yeah, no, let's see, math, many, 1,600 years ago. And uh, 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 Julian, the emperor, was, was trying to fight against Christianity, and Pliny's giving him a report about this, and Pliny says, 1,600 years ago, all men see that our people lack aid, but those Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. That really makes me mad, he says. See, what bothers Brian Palmer is, is, I don't think he's conscious of this, what really bothers him is that his real problem is not that there are so many Christian medical missionaries in Africa, but there are so few atheistic rationalist doctors in Africa helping people with Ebola. Why is that? Why is it that the worldview of followers of Christ lead to great sacrifice and great service when, when Palmer's atheism doesn't? Why are there so many hospitals in the world with the names Presbyterian or Baptist or Saint something on it when there's very few hospitals named after atheist superstars? There are in the world a lot of generous and kind and loving atheists. I know that. But I wonder, whose life is more consistent? Whose... Life matches their values better. Christians who are sacrificing to serve others or atheists who are sacrificing to serve others. Hmm. The the, the apostles here are are encouraging the church to represent Christ in a full-orbed way. They're, They're caring for one another. And they're proclaiming Christ. We love one another, he says. We love one another and we love outsiders because God has loved us first. In fact, he loves us so much that he sent his son for us to meet the greatest need that we have, namely forgiveness. Because naturally, none of these things, it's, it's a lot more natural to be a complaining, grumbling person than it is to be a sacrificial giving person. Naturally, we're selfish people. We're proud and angry and self-righteous and impatient and impious and boastful. We're thoughtless. We're, we're bitter people. We're in rebellion naturally against our Creator, and it, it, it unsettles us. We're like pra- planets in the universe without the gravitational pull of the sun, wobbling lives, smashing and crashing into one another. But Christ has come, and on the cross he paid the penalty we owed because of our sin. He gave his life, absorbing in his own body the wages that we deserve because of a rebellion against God. He's risen, he's seated at the Father's right hand. He gives life and forgiveness to all who will receive them from him by faith. He gives us this new life. And one of the evidences of this new life is that we, we care for one another. We love one another. It doesn't seem possible. You read Acts 6 and it doesn't seem possible. How does a well-set table, how does a well-served meal, how do well-cared-for widows, how could it be that they would be the launching pad for the spread of the Word of God? But it happens here in the book of Acts. Chapter 6 is one of these turning points. And brothers and sisters, how thankful I am 
as I read this. I'm thankful for the number of people in our church who believe that what this says is true. Let's press on in this work, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we're thankful to you for your word and we're thankful to you for how in so many ways your word uh, has, has shaped us, the, 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 the values and, and priorities and plans that we, we try to follow, we strive for. We, we see them here lived out in this passage and I'm, I'm thankful to you for the uh, men and women who have been involved in our congregation since its inception or for decades and they're the ones who have embraced this and, and set the pace for us as we seek to honor you. Lord, I pray that you would enact Act 6 in our congregation in, in greater ways, that our elders would be marked by their humility and by their commitment and dedication to representing Christ in this full-orbed way. Thank you for those in the church who are skilled at setting tables and contacting and caring for widows and meeting needs behind the scenes that most of us will will never see. How thankful we are for them. Lord, keep us faithful in that work and in the work of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Raise up for us more and more men who are evidently full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom for, for the advance of the gospel in our towns, in our boroughs, in our townships, in our county. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying,